Summer's winding down. I think summer's over, everybody. We are getting into that fall season. High school's back in action. We got sports teams going. I know I've seen a lot of high school kids out and about practicing. This is the energy time. We got fall season approaching. Summer went very fast for us this year. Our guest today, without Bob Pye in the house, we do have a guest. He is in-house with us. I met him very recently out in the scene. I love to dance. I think I've mentioned it a few times on this podcast that my favorite thing to do is dance. Sensations Nightclub is the one spot I like to go on Friday nights, sometimes on Saturdays. It's got a great uh, Latino night on Friday nights. Good energy. The owners are great. Really look out for the patrons and the wait staff is bar none best in Rochester. Love all of them. They're all sweet people. and with us today is James Schulteis, who yeah. I met at Sensations. Welcome, James. Yep, that's me. I'm a, uh, one of the head bartenders there. Uh, take care of things, train people, you know, bartend, the usual stuff. He but, is more than that. He is energy. He stands leaps and bounds above most. How tall are you, James? I'm 6'4". Six 6'4". Four. Six four. So I think the reason why I want to meet him in the first place is see if I had a basketball buddy. But I don't <laughs> think he's really basketball. a hoops player. Yeah, that's what I learned I mean, quickly. I just uh, like local ball, but nothing competitive. Nothing worth noting. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I love to play hoops, many people know. but So I'm always recruiting 6'4 and a taller. Anytime I can recruit guys like that to play on my team in the winter is always helpful. I mean, I can try, big but guys. I'm not guarantee any, uh, any results. Are you a rebounder, defender, or shooter? None of the above. <laughs> you just like you got the energy to run up and down the court? Yeah, I'm in well enough shape. Oh, we like that. No, he's definitely in good shape. So, James, I'm going to bore you a little bit because I do want to give a recap. I went to a really cool event here in the last couple of weeks, by now, uh, probably about three weeks ago now. Uh, and it brought, it was put on by the Hemp Industry Association, which is an organization that's been around since 1994. They have been working behind the scenes and doing a lot of the political work for the hemp industry, helping to move the medical marijuana. Um, uh, forward with legislation. They actually sued the DEA three times and won three times. And then there's a fourth suit that's uh, kind of a 50-50 split. Um, they've basically pre- been protecting CBD hemp and the growing of it and the strengthening of it in this country and then the medical marijuana side as well. And I met this woman who just blew my doors off. Her name is Joy Beckerman. She's the president of the Hemp Industries Association. She's the regulatory officer for Elixinol and the principal hemp and ACE International. She is involved in everything. She's got dreads like nobody's business. She, I walked in the room and she knew my name and, the, and why I was there. She knew my last name without me wearing a name tag just by saying, hello, my name is Brian. I, I don't know how she knew me. And this woman, I found out, is pretty much the linchpin of the hemp industry in the country. And her positive energy, every single person, she would be speaking up in front of the crowd of, uh, I would say, 150, 250, 200 people probably showed up for this event in Albany. It was on August 14th, 2019. It was held at the Albany Capital Center. Uh, and it was the New York Hemp Association Hemp Farming and Legal Update and Educational Event. So basically it was put on totally to educate local farmers, processors, anybody involved in the industry to what the updates are. And I don't want to bore everybody, but there was really some cool things that were talked about. And I just want to keep everybody abreast of what's kind of going on nationally. Ohio just recently uh, 
approved CBD, which makes them now makes it now so there's 47 legal states where hemp is legal. So there's only three states still kind of pushing against hemp. Uh, when I talk about hemp, I'm talking about it not only for CBD, but also for fiber, grain and seed, uh, and then THC, obviously, for the medical side of it as well. Uh, but she also went over for most people uh, the the basis of the Farm Bill in 2014, 2018. Uh, but a curious thing, James. So you know how it's been increasing their growing across the country. In 2016, there was 90, almost 10,000, let's say, acres of U.S. hemp grown. Mm-hmm. That's in the whole country, 10,000 acres. Yeah. Was that lower or higher than you would have thought 2016? I would still say uh, lower just lower. because... I mean, if you look at recreational growing um, for the other side of what the marijuana plant can be, mm-hmm. uh, you obviously know there was far more than that. So for CBD plants to be trickled in there because of other people discovering the, I don't know, the medical benefits without a lab, um, I feel like there had to be far more, you know, even illegal grow ops of CBD, weed that produces CBD. Mm-hmm. And just to, um, just to clarify, everybody, it wasn't until 2014 where you were able to start growing uh, hemp for CBD, but... Uh, so any, all these U.S. acres of hemp is, again, is not just for CBD. It's for fiber and grain. Yeah. So a lot Close of this production. stuff got, yeah, so a lot of this stuff most people don't know. And I just found out from another person who was on the panel. Uh, his name is Jeff Kostick, uh, and he works for the Hemp Production Services and Hemp Genetics International in Canada. And he basically is uh, on the board that does all the shipping of all the hemp out of Canada overseas. Yeah. And they used to send six to seven shipping containers a week of hemp to South Korea. Yeah. I mean, it's that's <laughs> for, that is for fiber and grain in the seed. We're not even talking about CBD or THC or any of that. Folks. Well, that, that goes back to the original reason why marijuana was legal was, I believe it was in the 19, early 1900s between, I think, 1910 and 1920. It was um, basically a large businessman realized that he could make more money with a different patent when they came up with a machine that could synthesize hemp into fiber more efficiently because before they didn't really have, I think it was a de, it was basically a de-stemmer to some extent. And what happened was is he pushed for legislation and started spreading fake, fake news back in the early 1900s about, you know, marijuana causing all kinds of social issues. And, and that was uh, closer to 32 because what happened was, uh, so the story goes, there's a congressman that got mad because uh, some jazz singers uh, messed around with his girlfriend or wife. Yep, and that helped yeah, push right. through the original businessman's like uh, initiative, I guess. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And that was uh, in the 1920s to 1932. He's right. That's we, we've talked about it before on the podcast. So now uh, from 2016, there's like 10,000 acres. In 2018, it moved up to 80,000 acres nationally. Yeah. So that's where we are now, 80,000, 80, about 78, 179. That was confirmed planted acres in the U.S. for hemp. And but, legal. I mean, what would be considered legal? Amen. 100% of it's legal. And this year, right now, permitted, there are a quarter million acres of hemp permitted right now in the country. I mean, it's just a a means to an end. There was originally, it was a better product, but it took us the last 80 to 90 years to realize it. And now being able to utilize it once we realized all the fake news that was released and demonization of the plant. Amen to that. And... Uh, on top of that, what another now finding is it is something for farmers who need a rotation in their crops, uh, farmers who need uh, some kind of profit because they're not making profit off the other products like Long Island, for instance. Um, there's some people on Long Island now growing, and most of Long Island is potato farmers. Yep. Well, the popularity of potato, potatoes from down there shrunk. Now, there's thousands of acres down there available for farmers. Just so everybody yep. knows, everybody's a farmer. 
Long Island, don't go down there with hemp because we don't want you <laughs> mixing all the strains down there. But if you want to go find something to grow, Long Island is available right now, especially yep. out by the Hamptons and Riverhead. Most people know all the potato farms go away. So the top five states for hemp, I thought this was interesting. Colorado was number one in 2018. Montana was number two. Oregon third. And then Kentucky and Tennessee rounded out the top five. I'm su- still surprised to see southern states adopting it quicker than what you would consider a progressive state. And I'm so glad you said that because then there's this woman, um, Danny Fontaine. She's the owner of the Colorado Hemp Project. And her and her father had the first successful hemp grow in Colorado back in 2014, I think it was, or or 13. I apologize if Danny hears this and I got the year wrong. But she is this energetic little spark club. And she traveled to Kentucky the day before to look at farming equipment to bring out to her farms in Colorado before she sprinted to Albany to be part of this panel for everybody. Yeah, I mean. It's, so it's cool. an emerging industry and just like the cultivation. I mean, the equipment that's going to be needed, the f- work hands. I mean, you're talking about a huge emerging uh, like ec- economic bubble that's growing because now of the legalization. It was always there. It could always been produced. But, you know, with through our own ignorance, I guess, as a society, we just never thought it through properly until now. So Danny Fontaine had this energy. F- she followed Joy up. And also we had Jen Gilbert Jenkins. So I got to say this. I'm a SUNY Morrisville alum. I'm proud to say I'm a Mustang. That's where I got my journalism degree. And right now, Jen Gilbert Jenkins has a PhD professor at Morrisville State College, my alma mater. And they were one of the first organizations here in this state that grew hemp. So they were uh, growing industrial hemp and they still are now. But now their initiative, they've added a couple facets to their initiative, which got me real excited. They want are trying to team up with processors because right now they're working this summer very diligently with farmers who are growing hemp across the state. And they're going to collectively grab data to try and help farmers grow hemp better in the state as it emerges. So right now, New York State just, you know, is slowly moving into this. So slowly they've been adding acres since 2014. So now we have an organization, we have a college that's actually going to help these hemp farmers to make sure that they're going to help this plant. Which is, it's completely necessary. It's like if you took any plant, moved it anywhere else in the state, or even in the state or within the local, um, you know, climate or throughout the country, it's vastly different. You obviously grow grapes in the Finger Lakes for a reason. You can't grow them in your front yard. You could, but you wouldn't be successful in producing what you wanted. So it's uh, important to you know, have research available so people aren't wasting their time growing something somewhere a certain way and having a total loss of a crop. How, how old are you, James? I'd be 23 now, turning 24 in December. This dude next to me is 23. You guys are going to hear really quickly here why I gravitate to this dude and really like his company because this is a well-educated kid, as you guys can tell already. We'll dig more in here in a minute. But I also want to add something else about the college aspect to this because the second piece of it is Cornell University has a big role in the hemp in this state. And they came with a full packet. So this event that happened in Albany was pretty much set up for farmers to help new farmers in the state to understand the equipment that's needed. Uh, the gentleman from Canada, Jeff, he was really talking about, actually, you see pictures of him on combines, where the combines, one of the biggest issues with combines is, most people know, fires. Because yep. what happens is the fiber gets wrapped around all the turbines of these farm piece of equipment. So what you need to do is you need to shore up every all that equipment so you don't allow fiber to get anywhere other than where it needs to be combined. So what you have to do is you have to have 
like fabricate some of this farm equipment to make it so it works with the fiber of the hemp plant better than it would just a corn plant, which wouldn't get wrapped up as easy or cause fires because of the, it's, it's the stuff we learned. So this is the information that was passed on to farmers, but Cornell was really, uh, had an interesting role. So Marie Ulrich is a specialist at Cornell Cooperative Extension, and she's an agricultural program leader. Funniest part, she used to work with like fruits and vegetables. Now she's writing the program for the hemp program for Cornell. And she basically spent 20 minutes teaching people how to understand the contracts, how to get contracts, where to get the rights from. Like she mentioned things like uh, field rights and gate rights. Like you can get paid up to when it's pulled out of the field or at the gate of your farm. So then you actually have to think about who's transporting it and how that can affect your crops. She yep. went into such detail for these farmers. It was really a special event. I know it wasn't online. In the uh, our next episode, I'm going to talk about it further because I'm going to have some of the um, guests from here I'm going to have on the show. So we'll expand more and I don't want to bore James. But uh, the Hemp Industry Association, once again, just want to give them a huge kudos uh, for putting on a great event for a couple hundred people in Albany that was very educational. Um, I think I've learned a lot in this last few years of this few years within this industry. And that day, I just reminded that I still have a lot to learn, yep. um, which is really cool. Well, it's, it sounds like they went in deeper than the face value. You know, hemp's legal. Let's grow it now. It's okay. I have a farm here. What's the nearest area I could process it? Is there other people starting businesses to process the hemp? Am I going to make my own process? You know, how can I legally do this? It's not just putting a few seeds in the ground with you know, we live in a bureaucratic country. There's, you got to get, if you want to put a shed in your backyard, you got to go to the city hall or town hall and get, you know, approval to do so. So, you know, people don't think that through. They think, oh, hemp's legal, weed's legal. Let me go throw a couple seeds in the ground and start a business. That's just not the case. I mean, some of the things I learned that day, hemp is a finicky plant. It doesn't like cold soil. So Canada, think about Canada. They have a ton of acreage. Um, They have a, the whole state or the whole country now is legal for uh, medical and recreational, but yet their soil is not even well suited to grow that plant. Yeah. And how you mentioned before, let's say wine, you want to get a Riesling here in Germany. Why? The latitude, the longitude, the, yeah, the, the way the weather temp- pattern comes through and the, the composition of the soil is super important. I mean, for Canada, it sounds like with their more cold climate than the U.S., they'd have to go to some sort of indoor setup or a uh, like a greenhouse setup, but to grow outside would be highly inefficient in the long run. Too short of a season. Yeah, that's yep. definitely a piece of it. Yeah, so they can grow the grain and fiber up there um, pretty well. Um, they're, get, they're getting better at it, but yep. at the end of the day, uh, I believe they're going to contract someone down here. Yeah. Um, and that's not, I didn't learn that from the show, but I'm just thinking Constellation and the, their piece of it helping them out and yep. Constellation is a license here. Uh, but at the end of the day, the other thing I, I learned, which I thought was really cool, is because as they add acres, it's going to be harder as the pollen of all these plants starts spreading through birds and the wind and environment. Yep. They're saying it's going to be hard to keep strains individually, right? So you're going to have a lot of CBD strains in an area. So all New York State, let's say there's four strains that are growing well in New York State. Yeah. They're going to start to kind of cross-pollinate yeah. and maybe prevent the higher CBD percentages. Yeah, that is possible. I mean, but if you, I mean, under like plant genealogy, if you can find recessive and, you know, dominant genes, they're going to be able to find the ones that will, you know, contribute to each other. So they're going to start mixing plants similar to like, I mean, the indoor grower, you have to make sure you have males, females, you have to make sure that things will work together. 
And I don't know if it would be a regress in the CBD amount because because of its, you know, hemp and weed being illegal for so long, primarily growers focus towards THC. So right now to go back to the derived original plant that was maybe very high in CBD but was grown out over the last 100 years, you know, through our own manipulation, I feel like it wouldn't be that difficult to regress or find uh, like uh, core plants, which they have done. I mean, there's people that Mm -hmm. travel the entire world, go through the Amazon jungle to search for original strain plants that, you know, are sought after in their natural environment that haven't been touched by man, I guess. You're right. Totally natural. What did you major? I originally started as a mechanical engineering major, and that was the original plan, but it was, I ended up changing course after two years into business, and it was primarily because the um, the way I, the way my mind works, I can't memorize like specific equations. I can memorize fact. I can memorize like a story. I can retell the story the same way they say a thousand times. But if you give me, let's say, even the simple quadratic equation, which is simple to some, some not, my brain will switch different variables within the equation. So when you go and try to apply that to a test, I can't do it. If you give me the equation outright, and I have it right there on the test, I can do the equation fine. So, I mean, that's not, it is a problem with me because of the expectations set into, you know, what a math major is, Mm -hmm. where I see an option is like, why am I writing out the quadratic equation when I can take a calculator that I have next to me and plug it in perfectly and it's always going to come up with the correct answer? You know, the hand calculations always seemed redundant to me. It seemed rather pointless. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, you have a car next to a bicycle, you got to go 50 miles, which one are you going to take? I'm going to take the car, you know. If I have to solve this equation, I'm going to take the calculator. And sitting, and I would rather sit there and argue with the fact that I should be able to use that calculator than the fact that I need to learn this, you know, memorize this equation perfectly just because it was always a struggle for me. I could just can't remember equations perfectly. I always, it's not that I miss a part, but I switch variables very often. So then that detracted me to going into a business major because um, at the time, the biggest hindrance on my progress through the engineering program was my math level. I need to get to a certain math level so I could take um, the certain engineering specific classes, which also seemed very redundant because in those classes you would use a computer application to do the computations. You wouldn't be doing them by hand. So it almost seemed like relatively pointless. And when I get into a position where I feel it's pointless, I look for a different out. So I gravitated towards um, economic classes, business management theory, things like that. And I ended up having enough uh, credits accumulated through my engineering program that it only took um, took less than a semester, or it took just over a semester, like but what would be considered maybe like a semester and a half of course load mm-hmm. and far as hours. Um, I switched into business, business administration, so I got my associates in that, eventually transferred into Brockport and got my bachelor's, which I'm actually fighting them right now on um, a certain issue with my degree. I haven't they never sent me my diploma, never informed me, and they go, oh, yeah, you need, you didn't hear this specific Brockport requirement. I'm going, well, I have 121 credits completed for business administration, bachelor's of business administration. They're like, well, you had to take six more, cla- or six more credit hours, which is equivalent to about two classes, two and a half classes, mm-hmm. um, at a four-year institution for it to count because of our academic policy. So I'm currently in a battle with them and in in through an appeal process because luckily through high school I went through an engineering program there Mm-hmm. which we were luckily at, have enough, I can't speak highlier of that. Uh, it's called Project Lead the Way. I'm not even sure if it's still relevant or it's still Interesting. part. But they funded us into doing like an electric car program. We built a hybrid electric car and competed in Texas with it. And through that program, uh, there was an ending credit accumulation test. So once if you got a certain score on that test, you actually um, receive those credits from RIT, which are 
pretty valuable, especially if you're going through the RIT track because schooling in RIT is extremely expensive. I mean, you're talking over $1,000 a credit hour that it's going to cost you about, you know, in some aspects. I mean, obviously, there's certain ways to get around it, but if you're paying book value at RIT, you know, getting even four credit hours at a, you know, through your high school for free is, you know, you're talking about maybe a $1,000 course. So you have those on top of the 121 that you already said you had? I have, I believe, over 160 total from um, being in multiple programs at the community college and then transferring to state college. I maxed out my transfer credits going into Brockport, and then that's why I have my degree requirement met but not Brockport's academic Association, I seem to be caught in a bureaucratic trap right now. It seems to me like what? How much is it a credit hour at Brockport? I think it's around two to three hundred. It's not two. Uh, let's see, three hundred times six. Oh, so they want another two grand out of you before you leave? Uh, yeah, essentially. Um, and that's where I caught them. And uh, my claim is that I'm being scammed because I went through their advisement protocol. You have to go into an office, set a time. You have to email a specific professor they assigned you. You don't get to choose. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can adjust once you've. If you have conflicts with the, the uh, advisor, which you would never know you had conflicts with unless it was a direct personality conflict with. And so you start in and you have to go and meet with them for X amount of time, fill out a sheet, go through this degree works program, and they're supposed to recommend the class you have to take. Then they give you a unlocking code, go into the register's uh, website, and then you can register for those classes. They give you your requirement. Mm-hmm. See, the problem that I had is I had three different advisors through four semesters there. Um, most of them I had to chase down to get a conversation with. I wasn't getting any updates on where I should be meeting, who I was supposed to contact. I didn't even know who my advisors were until I got an email from or I sought it out through um, some department and finally got a name and an email, and then I emailed them and go, hey, I need to register for classes. I'm late again because I haven't been reached out to. So I had issues with them, and mm-hmm. they were very confident that this is what you need to take. This is You have to do X, and then you know, Y is the result. You have your degree. So in the spring semester, I only took th- three classes because I was told those are the three you need to take. Um, another tricky thing about it is at state schools, once you hit full-time, I'm not sure if this is applicable to other schools. I only have experience in SUNY Brockport and MCC. Mm-hmm. Um, once you reach full-time, you don't have to pay extra tuition. So there's a cap out on how much you pay versus your education. So throughout my whole college career, except for that final semester, I would be taking you know, 16 to 18 credits just because... Above 12 is free. So if I can get two free classes and learn more without it coming out of my pocket, I would do that. Of course. And where I'm finding the issue is now is I don't mind going back to Brockport and taking two, three-hour classes. And, you know, maybe I'd probably take them online. They can be any level. They're not differentiated that I have to be 300 or 400 level or above. They could be one or 200, which is my so argument. Two electives. Yeah, two electives. I shouldn't have to pay tuition on them because if I was told to take them in the spring, they would have been covered. So that's where... I'm calling it a scam. Like essentially, Sunny Brockport's trying to scam me out of you know anywhere from between a thousand, two thousand. You know, besides travel costs, textbook costs, stuff like that. The raw tuition is what they're. It sounds like they're expecting me to pay. I've been on the off the phone with them for a couple of weeks now, and I haven't really gotten a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, we're trying to help you, and I'm like, yeah, but you're part of the problem. You're part of the association that's really stonewalling me right now. So back in ninety. 90- Two when I transferred from Morrisville to Oswego. Yeah. Two SUNY schools. Because I had a journalism, you know, basically minor from being at Morrisville is kind of how the program worked. Yeah. I had to stay an extra semester at Oswego to cover those couple extra cla- journalism classes I took there, even though I was getting a communication degree. Yeah. 
badass we go. I mean, uh, it, I, it, you know, I fall into even within the system that I considered, you know, acceptable loss. I fell into a trap where I had to learn, um, you know, Excel and Word. Mind you, one was in engineering, one was in business, and another one was in business three different times. The same computations, the same plugin, the same functions, just in different forms. And I had to do that because I was in the engineering program. I needed that class. I took that class, achieved the credit, switched the business program. That doesn't transfer equivocally. Even though if you open up the textbooks, it's just different. You know, they're just referencing different um, computations, but in all, all reality, they're teaching you the same shortcuts, the same layouts, how to find things, how to build a function. And then in between, when I left MCC, it met my requirement. But the year, the semester that I took it at MCC and completed it, Brockport changed the requirement. So I had to retake that class in a business setting again, which was the same class. But they changed one of the requirements on what you learned through uh, like a database program. So I've taken you know, Microsoft Excel, Word, PowerPoint three different times possibly even four different times through other forms of like seminars, classes, and things mm-hmm. like that. So I was like, I was already frustrated with Brockport from the get-go. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just mounting up. And at this point, you know, if they don't resolve it, I plan on, I even told them myself, I was like, I plan on making it a public, a public well-known thing that this is what you're doing. Because I've, I've asked their administrators that I'm talking to, and I go, what's the academic value in this program? I go, it sounds like you're hindering education with whether I wanted to go into a master's or a doctorate, you know, start that track of education. I wouldn't be able to start it. Or if I want to go right into the workforce, I'm hindered right now, and I, I don't understand how it's beneficing students. And none of them have been able to produce a straight answer with that. And I think that's where I'm trapping them right now, is they can't explain the value in their process. <sighs> that's, so. you know, my son's at Buffalo. He, I think he had 20 credit hours after high school, mm-hmm. AP specific yep. high school, you know, West Rondequite, high, high AP classes. Had some good grades, you know, the threes or whatever. So they accept, they took the minimum they could out of those credits. Yep. Right. So we Transfer thinking, him down and down and down as much so as possible. So you think, all right, he's going to be there maybe three and a half semesters. He's going to be a day, still be there four full years. Yep. Um, the only nice thing is with the new SUNY program, right? So uh, as long as he works now in New York State, the amount of years he accepts the scholarship, the Excelsior scholarship. Yep. So he's getting that wave. So he's only paying the room and board side of it, um, which is nice. I'm going to say that's a great value, but we've been fighting over yep. silly classes and silly credits. Like they want to take his last semester of the Excelsior scholarships away, even though Everything they we they told us to do, we've made sure it was done myself yeah. and my ex-wife and my son. We're very thorough people because we don't want to get caught. And my son's so paranoid that he's thinking, I can't leave the state for so many years after it's gonna pay back these loans. And and me and his my, my his his mother are like, No, don't worry about it. we'll help you with that because at the end of the day we want you to go have a job and be happy. Like yeah. you're not tied to it. All this is means is if you're in New York State, you're getting a s- $7,000 value a year. That's Well, I mean, there's huge. ways around that anyways. I mean, you could, as long as this, the company's stationed in New York and they pay their taxes here, then it would count. It's it's not like he's completely trapped within the bounds of New York State. Amen. That's yeah. a great point. Thank you. So so my whole point is we are experiencing the same thing. You have yeah. just experienced And I've, I've heard a, numerous stories from almost all of colleges where it seems that they just try to squeeze and, you know, get you to bleed. as They kick that dead horse as much as possible. I think part of the problem is the new structure of the payment, right? This Excelsior scholarship, because you know the state's not giving dollar for dollar what yeah. the students would have paid to those colleges, right? Exactly. So the colleges are probably already, all right, less money coming into our budget, which we've had for how many years? Yeah. 
So I get part of it, but at the end of the day, how much waste do you see on campus? I've seen an excessive amount of waste. And it's, it's I mean, it stems into the, the whole debate on student debt. And, but I, if I go and get in a, a business, business degree of any, you know, there's, I could go into accounting, finance, whatnot. Um, for someone to go into um, like interpretive dance degree, which Brockport had a dance program. I don't know the exact courses you would take and what the course load. And I can't speak. I on think that. it's a good one as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. is there value in that degree? Yes. But it, what's the applicable value? So while, you know, cool, I got my, my loans paid off, but they get their loans paid off. And then what about the kid that went right to trade school? Where's the value? Like, he could it should be getting you know that thirty thousand dollars that someone accumulated in loans. Why I don't understand this payoff system where they're like abolish student debt. Yes, I get it would help a lot of people, but I don't. I think it comes back to personal accountability. I mean, when you you go to these colleges, you tour these colleges. There's you know every single place in the United States or most places have a community college at a far like if you don't have financial aid available, let's say your parents make pretty good money, but they don't want to contribute to your further your education. So you're sitting there taking a loan for the full amount. You know, I could have gone to Brockport, which is around seven to ten thousand dollars a year in tuition. Mm-hmm. Or I could go to MCC, which was two to four. So I went the MCC route because I had a fixed amount of money from my grandmother, which was what people say, Oh, you're born with a silver soon. The actual reason I got the money is because my oldest cousin, who's about twelve years older than me, needed twenty five thousand or she needed fifteen thousand between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars to pay for her last semester at college. She couldn't afford it. So my grandmother had to pay out. But the way the um the will is dictated because my grandma's quite old. I mean she's in her nineties now. She was in her eighties and not she wasn't running her own estate at that point. Mm-hmm. So legally they had to distribute the money equally between all the cousins. So if my cousin got fifteen to twenty thousand, we all had to get it. It wasn't as if it was like a direct gift. It was just Dumb luck. Circumstances. Circumstance. It was circumstantial. So I had twenty five yeah. with you know over twelve years. It grew to about twenty five thousand dollars the way it was set up. I could either withdraw that money and lose sixty three percent, or I could not take the money and it would go to my younger sisters. Which I'm an older brother. I got two younger sisters. You know, some people can put together that story. I didn't really want them to have that money, and <laughs> I wanted to use it. So what Finish. I figured out was I figured out my cheapest way to go to college, the way to stretch that money out the longest, and that was MCC. And at that point, the MCC uh, 2 plus 2 program with RIT and engineering was very well known and very successful. And they actually had some better facilities. They had a, an integrated machine shop, 3D labs. They recently had some grants a couple years before that really accelerated the program. So you were actually getting in some level of at least experience a better education for the first two years while paying you know a tenth or even less compared to RIT. So that's what landed me at MCC. A lot of people see MCC and they go, oh, you know, you're a high school screw up. Like I, I had a 91 GPA in high school. You know, I carried over a 3.5 and through college. I'm not a dummy. People, I just, people in Rochester, I'm just going to tell you right now, any negative connotations you have, Dennis, MCC, put them in your pocket and go away. Yes, there are people who go to MCC because maybe they, the people, they don't have the money. They don't have this. But I'm going to tell you right now, the programs MCC, the dentistry, yep. the culinary. I saw it. I didn't the, believe it until I saw it. The mecha- like, and the uh, athletic and nursing. Teams, nursing. Yeah. Like the nur- you, you can go in and get certifications out of there and go right into the medical field at MCC. Yeah. It's a l- hard to get into. There's so much to offer there. But there are some disadvantages. Like common disadvantages are the people that skated in. You know, barely graduated high school. Their parents told them to go to college. The only place they go is MCC. You know, you see the people taking advantage of financial aid. Um, you know, they get their check. 
for after we always joke after six weeks there'll finally be parking spaces open because after six weeks tape, people would take their financial aid check not realizing you know the damage they're doing to their credit in the future yep. and walk away and not realizing they owe that money back because it wasn't used for school because you you can get the money for school which is great and you can use it towards school but you have to prove you used it the Pell, Pell grants we're talking about right yeah, like the, Pell and Tap there's a, yeah, yeah there's, I'm trying to think of it because back in the day I'm just mine was so long ago I did I got a check my last two years I would get a check and I'd have to pay my bills out so I was renting a house I'd have to pay the bills yeah. out of the house and you had to be able to it's just like the IRS you have, to, it's, you have to prove your income you have to prove how you spent that money and a lot of people take advantage of it not realizing the consequences of what they're doing so I mean you'll start a class with 35 people by week 7 because it, 6 weeks is when they start payout usually it was like 5 or 6 weeks week 7 you'd lose 10 students so if you were working on a project with them they're gone um, you're also dealing with people that just don't care. I mean, they have no weight in the game. Maybe their financial aid covered it, so they're not. Their family's not paying money. They're not paying any money. They're just there, and they're basically just taking up space in the classroom. They don't want to contribute. They don't want to answer questions with the professors. They just want to, you know, just sit there and do as minimal work they can and still get a passing grade so they can appease their parents. So would you say in that environment, is it the 10% rule? Is it 10% like that or is it a little bit more in that environment? I would say that was like 40 to 50%. Wow. That's Whereas what was nice about going to Brockport is people had a little bit more weight in the game. So that would probably drop around, I would say only about 20, 10 to 20%, let's say at SUNY Brockport is, at least in the business program, that's what I experienced, is people actually did want to learn. MCC, you had a lot of people that were just there, you know, taking up space, taking up oxygen in the room. And it's like, why are you here? Go home. Like, I don't get it. If we don't have a carrot or something, right? Yeah. It's very easy to drift yeah. or be a drifter, right? So so who knows what any of those kids' circumstances are or people's no. circumstances are. But at the end of the day... But your personal motivation takes a lot of it. And it's I'm not judging these people because there could be millions of reasons why they're a bump on the law. They got problems at home. They got mm-hmm. horrible upbringing. Those are all to take into account. But the fact that they don't have the integrity to apply themselves in a classroom with the education available, you have a professor, most of those professors are adjunct with RIT, St. John Fisher, Nazareth, SUNY Brockport, or they've worked in the field for 30 years before they started their education process, and they just do it because they want to help students. You, that's the majority of professors at MCC. They don't, they don't want to push you through. They don't want to skate you through. They want to teach you as much as possible. And a lot of them have way more real-life experience in the business world and engineering world that they can give you some insight of what you're going into. And a big thing I changed, another deciding factor besides my issues with math from switching from engineering to business was speaking with engineering professors that worked in the field for 20 years. They go, we don't really make new products. Like as me thinking of mechanical engineering, I want to build, be building airplane parts, building new jets, fighter jets. That was the dream, build planes build, you know, maybe warfare material, guns, bombs, not in like the maniacal sense, but it's just cool. cool. It's it's cutting edge technology. It's not something like, I'm not making a toaster for your kitchen. I'm making, you know, a jet that's going to fly 700 miles an hour and be able to do a a 9G turn. That's a lot more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Not because of the destructive factors of what that can result on, but the actual process and designing is very developed. The beauty of it. And speaking with the professors, they go, maybe like 2% of graduates will actually get to do that. The other 98%, they're working on how to improve that toaster, that KitchenAid toaster in your, in your kitchen. How can we redesign this, even though it does the same function, and get people to buy it at Walmart for $9.99? He was like, that will be your job. You're going to sit in an office, you're going to say, make this, improve this a little bit or change the aesthetics of it so it can improve. And that's going to be your job. And I was like, that sounds mindless. I was like, there's no, you're not reaching a point. It seems very capable. 
You know, if you're working a job in the hand, you improve this. And the next week, you're improving a coffee maker. Next week, you're improving a fridge. You're working on different things, but you're doing the same thing. You're not really progressing in any sense. So what Drew to in business is there's no cap to it. I mean, in sense, especially personal business owners, like small business owners obviously start out small, but McDonald's is a massive worldwide chain. But it started with, you know, a couple brothers and some entrepreneur that pushed them into going from one single store to two stores to 10 stores to 15 stores to, you know, I think there's 100,000 McDonald's or something in the world. And then they even went further in doing the land rights thing. If anyone hasn't seen the history of that movie, I don't remember the title of it. Yeah, no, it's great. It's with um, Michael Keaton. Yeah, very mm-hmm. good, interesting movie. Um, but it shows where you can start as a tiny bodunk, tiny little mom and pop shop. But if you make a good product and you do it well and you can market it well, you can grow into a worldwide force that, almost owns something. Or like Walt Disney. I mean, he started as a failed comic book writer and then started a worldwide corporation that just bought Sony. <laughs> I believe that was what I saw in the news today. It's, it's, that's, that would it's, be crazy, yeah. Don't but they own but, everything? Yeah, but it's, it's like you can start so small and that's why like business, there's not a cap to it. You know, if I wanted to open up, like my goal is bars, entertainment um, facilities, venues, like nightclubs, you know, um, music, live music venues, probably like I would, dream to have something around 2,000 people. That would be like the end goal when I'm 65, you know, hanging out. That's where I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is there a, a realistic track that I could plan out step by step? No way. But it's possible where I didn't want to pigeonhole myself into one track where there would be a limit to it. So I've focused in the bar industry since I was about, you know, even before I decided to change career paths, I knew I wanted to be a bartender when I was 16 or maybe even a little before that. And then I found my way to do that five years later. You know, three months after I turned 21, I was a bartender, or at least training. And then, you know... Now, what was your desire to be it? Social or financial or f- flexibility? It's actually a lot different. It's a little bit deeper than any of those. It's... Uh, I enjoy facilitating the positive experience. So, you know, when I go out, I don't care if my buddy has $5 to his name. I'll buy the drinks all night. It doesn't bother me because what I'm doing is what's more, uh, I don't know, rewarding than going out and drinking by myself is facilitating a positive experience for that friend, friend or stranger. You know, if I meet a random guy at the bar, I'm gonna, if he's like, oh, I got to head home. I don't got a lot of money to spend. I'll be like, I don't care. I'll buy you a shot and a drink. What do you need? And I've done this numerous times throughout Rochester, many different bars, many different people. It, it, it's never like, oh, I have this typical guy I seek out, the poor, sad guy at the bar I got to make happy. It's just anyone that strikes up a conversation with me, you struck up, a t- made my time better, I'm going to make your time better or at least extend your time out. Amen. Balance, so, right? Balance of relationships. Yeah. What draws me from, I guess, in, I don't know, I got to digress a little bit, but oh, the, the idea behind why I like bartending is because you're facilitating more positive interaction per hour than any other job you could do. I mean, if you look at you know, how do people meet most of their companions, guy, girl, you know, whatever your preferences, whatever, a sort of that, a lot of it is circled around bars, bars, music venues. I mean, anything you could think of, if you break it down and really look at it, ask your parents where they met, you know, if at a bar playing work, volleyball. If it wasn't work or family, it generally speaking probably was around a social uh, venue that had alcohol. Yeah. And, and that's what drew me to it is that, yes, you have the drunk frat boy causing trouble or you got the hoodlum that's causing trouble in the back or you got the girl that's crying because her boyfriend broke up with her over the phone. Yeah, you have those. But if you look at the whole sense, I mean, we go full nights at the nightclub that holds over 550 people and we'll have a whole night without a single confrontation. 
no fights, no altercations, no even not even someone raising their their voice out of an argument. To you facilitated the interaction of five hundred plus complete strangers that all had a phenomenal night that night. And to me, I'm going to be the owner at the you know at the door at the exit, come close up, shaking everyone's hand. You know, how'd you have an, like? Did you have a good night? How'd you feel about the place? Is there anything we can improve on? Things like that. Obviously, the normal kickback was like, make the drinks free. Uh, yeah. You know. yeah, give me stiffer drinks. Yeah, but that, that's, those are like the you know, anecdotes you ignore. But uh, and I, the ones that just people want to play with you is like, you know, I had a good time. Here's me playing back, right? Like, yeah. you know, we, we like to be sarcastic. I mean, that's how we met was you being a customer at the bar. And then eventually we started hanging out outside of work because, you know, our company was like, your company is well welcomed. And, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, we go out on Sundays, meet up with us, have a good time. And you've done that multiple times now. Uh, you know, anytime I'm around you guys, uh, from the owners down, I'm just always feel welcome. And it, it's always like, it doesn't matter who you are. We are just enjoying each other's company and the stories and the conversation. Yeah. I mean, right? we all come from such vast different backgrounds like uh, one of my buddies from Albany I'm from small town in Brockport we have people that grew up in the city that are security guards it doesn't what's nice about the nightclub not only the experiences our staff is like we're very cohesive people even though we're far different like I'm college educated some people are going through college some people never even went to college some people might not even graduate high school but we don't look at those things we look at oh, you want to go out on Sunday? Let's grab a few drinks and have fun. You know, what are your interests? What do you like? Do you like sports? Do you like strip clubs? It doesn't matter. Um, you know, let's find a common thing we like to do. Um, we all have the same day off on a Sunday, so we go out and we enjoy each other's company. Obviously, the first couple times was a little weird because we come from far different backgrounds. Some people are 20 years older than me. So the first couple times, like getting the hang of hanging out with these people is a little strange. But once you, you know, grow together and find common bonds and, you know, what you actually want to do, it's it's a lot of fun. You just have to be very open-minded. I always joke, as because I have a lot of tattoos on my legs, or at least one leg. People go, how do you afford all that? I go, I don't really pay. They're like, what do you mean you don't pay? I go, well, have you ever gone up and talked to a guy with the stretched ears and the face tattoos at the bar? And they go, no. I go, go talk to him, become friends with him. He's probably a tattoo artist. And I never did it intentionally, but I was never afraid to talk to someone. So I slowly, my regulars became my tattoo artists. And because they're my regulars and they, we've created a rapport and we become friends hanging outside of work, they want to hook me up just as much as I want to hook them up at the bar. So it becomes like a symbiotic relationship between the two of them. They want to come into the bar and have a good time and you have some reasonable, you know, given what you can give away, what you can, you know, how you can hook people up, how you can like ring in stuff to save people a little bit of money, but they appreciate it just as much as when I go to get a tattoo and I'm paying $40 for what a regular walk, I'm going to pay 200 and that's how I have my tattoos because it wasn't because I sought out tattoo artists. It was because I was open to talking to anyone. Like I'm drawn to the person with fake tattoos because I go, that guy's got a story. I mean, 90, I mean, maybe not nowadays as much with the SoundCloud rappers and you know, getting <laughs> six, nine tattooed on your face. But yeah. uh, you know, I was always gravitated towards the weirdos even through high school because I was a bit of a weirdo. I'm a guy who like heavy metal music. And I don't mean like... Uh, I don't mean in the classical 80s sense. I mean like, like Iron Maiden or something. I mean, I, I enjoy that, but I've gone leaps and bounds above that. And yeah. I and so I was a little bit of a weirdo. I mean, it, it came out. I was ostracized somewhat to it, but then I found other people that like that type of music. And the people that like type music appear to be kind of a weirdo. I never went with like, you know, the big chain pants, you know, the goofy garb. I would wear band t-shirts, but people would 
pass by and not even notice it. Oh, that must be like a horror movie or something like that. They wouldn't, they uh-huh. would never pick up on it. Yeah. But I was, you know, on every Saturday night I could, I would have my parents drive me out to Rochester to go to a local hardcore show. You know, whether it was Ice Nine Kills or Sirens and Sailors or, um, I mean, they actually have a show coming up at the end of the month, but that's who I was 14 years old going to these shows, moshing, you know, getting bloody noses and, you know, throwing out, breaking a finger, throwing out my shoulders, swinging around like a jackass. But it was, it was fun. And you met so many different people from that. So I came from like a hardcore background, a local hardcore background, I guess. I love the judgmental people would hear that and go, oh, those mosh But it's an outlet, right? At the end of the day, isn't it just an outlet? Just like anybody else has an outlet. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, I always liked it because of the technicality, um, like musician wise. Like I grew up, trying to play instruments. Um, I ventured to pick up drums and got pr- fairly proficient at it. But what drew me to it, I was in um, a music store that doesn't exist anymore in Brockport. It was Jam Shack. And, you know, I'm cruising through, and I was listening to, like, ACDC and stuff like that. And I'm reading the CD, and it was the first issue of Sick Drummer Records from Sick Drummer Magazine, which has grown to have a pretty good following. And it was the CD of a compilation of all, like, the Sick Drummers of that era. And I never even heard of the style of music before. I mean, I was like Avenged Sevenfold was about as deep as I went into it, which is now considered almost mainstream music. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my first taste. And then I, he goes, you know what, just take it home and take, give it a listen. And I went through that and it had bands like, it just had bands that blew my mind because these guys were moving so fast on the drums that I still would never consider myself a good drummer because of what I've watched people do over the years on YouTube or through music. It's like, it's insane. And then, you know, you find, uh, you go to a buddy and you're like, oh, I like a uh, job for a cowboy. And they're like, oh, go check out Whitechapel. They're, they're pretty dope. And then it just keeps going. And now mm-hmm. with Spotify, which I use religiously, it recommends those. So I don't have to go out and seek out my buddy at a show and be like, oh, you know, what's like this? Spotify has an algorithm that just pops it up, you know, weekly playlist, go check out all these bands. And then you're deeper into the rabbit hole. And then you get into like math core and grindcore and black metal and there's so many different waves but everyone would normally consider screamo which i think is a huge detest and like knockdown on the screamo yeah screamo it's a it was actually a genre that popped up like god around 2005 2009 it was an actual genre and that's where people are you know screaming as the vocalist but what people didn't understand is there's so many subsets of different metal that's just one facet of metal and then you have black metal which is almost like orchestral in a sense like some of the bands like these are guys from like northern europe we're talking like sweden norway these guys are really dark and it's almost like they go into the satan stuff so all metal gets a satan rap but those are the actual satanists like they've burned down churches and done all that wild stuff oh wow okay that's and then you have like the post-hardcore guys which is like you know kind of like it's almost like a nationalistic sense for your city so it's like we're rochester we're gonna kick your ass and then and back you know 10, 15 years ago, there was actual issues where like, if you were from Buffalo and the hardcore scene, you came to Rochester, you'd get your, you know, you'd get kicked. Wow. You'd, you'd be, or you'd be removed from shows. You wouldn't be even allowed Without entry. Wow. And crazy. But the, there's so many different subsets that people always put under the umbrella of Screamo. And I'm like, you don't understand the half of it. And then um, like what's come around in like 2010s to now is this extremely technical Metal, it still has the screaming vocal aspects, but they also have incorporated in like a lot of falsetto accents back and forth, like the high pitch singing, and they're telling more of a story, but the musicianship is even getting more technical, like mind-blowing stuff. Like uh, there's, And then there's a, this whole other subset of instrumental bands. There's Animals as Leaders, which is 
just a wild or a covet, which is more of like an airy tone or polyphia. There's all these subsets of insane musicians that people don't know about because they just go, oh, that's part of Screamo. Can't listen to that. And I'm like, well, maybe if you try this card, like I just pull from my deck of cards because I know a lot of these musicians and they go, oh, I didn't know it was like this. They're like, I could, get, I could work out to this. And the next thing you know, they're in the tr- work truck with it on their headphones. It's just, that's how it happens. But there seems to be a weird mantra against harsh vocals. Um, you know. Now, I got to say, I don't, for me, it's not a very weird mantra, but it is just a taste, right? So yeah. like, I don't like seafood. So for me, I found that I like all genres of music, but I don't like the outer edges or extreme of any of it. Yeah. But I also don't like just listening to the top 40. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I hate country music with an extreme distaste because I find it repetitive. I also hate modern rap music. I, any music that doesn't have a a point, like if you're still talking about making money and sleeping with women and selling drugs, I just don't care. Or if you're talking about your girlfriend breaking up with you last week, I don't care. I like love songs. Like if you can articulate it with proper metaphors and, you know, music, music, music I guess like progressions through the mm-hmm. music. I was going to say, yeah, music that you enjoy listening to. Yeah. The, I mean, it... A lot of bands start out angry. I'm like, um, I'm a diehard Tool fan. Um, I've always listened to them. And if you listen through their like their first couple, you know, albums were angsty and aggressive, and they just wanted to rip stuff up. And then they opened up the doorway almost to like a more psychological sense and looking at the world in a wider scope than my girlfriend broke up with me, poor me, or like the system's fixed, screw the system, Rage Against the Machine style. Um, you know, they open it up to be like, okay. Um, what if we do have a third eye with our pineal gland and what would we see? Would, are these beings God? Like this, that open mindedness, um, you know, really accelerates it. And the fact that most of these bands that are speaking in that sense are incredibly talented. I mean, like uh, Danny Carey from tool basically started writing his drum parts on sacred geometry, which I've, only heard of, haven't really dove into. I'm trying to find an outlet to like look into it. And then they started coming out with crazy time signatures that people were like, how is he doing that? But it, it's those things that are needed. And I think the open-mindedness also opens the mind from going from, you know, a typical one and four rock groove, top 40 style beat progression. And then they're doing, you know, they're counting seven. And I'm like, what do you mean you're counting seven? And they're like, well, we're going to do it and we're going to make it sound good. And I'm like, okay, well, let's give it a try. Because I feel like the open-mindedness in your lyrical composition also influences your open-mindedness and how you're playing your instruments and lets you makes you be more creative. Because like, if we're not talking about girls breaking up with us anymore, I feel like we got to step the instrumentals up a little bit because we're you know going down that rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying they're the only band that have done this through And time. I like Tool, actually. I like Tool more now than in their beginning. So it's yeah. funny that you spell that out because... I didn't pay attention enough to, to know that whole story like that. Yeah. So. I mean, um, I recently read his book, um, listened to uh, his most recent Joe Rogan interview. I find the guy fascinating in the sense that it's he's a version of how you can be yourself while under different facets. Like you can go through the motions. Like, because I never wanted to go to college, but I went because I had, there was money to use. Um, you know, my mother wanted me to get a college degree. So while I went through college, I didn't separate from the fact that I hated it. And I also didn't make that affect my, uh, my progress through college. I didn't go and sit and, I'm not going to take this class. This is too hard for me. I didn't go poor me. I was like, I decided to get this done. I need to finish it. He went through West Point prep. So like, he joined the Army and then went through West Point prep and then was offered a job to West Point. But he only went to the military because he wanted 
the government to pay for his art degree because his parents wouldn't and he had no ways of doing it. So he was offered a position at West Point Academy from the U.S. Army and rejected it because he never lost his way. Though he went through the military program, though he did his service, he never lost the fact that he was only did it to go to art school. It was just an outlet. And the only reason, you know, I went to college was because I was told to, you know. But I, I never put any of my other hobbies at the back burner. I still had motorcycles, still snowboarded. I was never, like, super poor except for some specific inferences we could get into at another time. So, and that's, what, and that's the thing that really drew me to you is there's a lot of college students that I've run into lately that uh, it is always me. It's, man, this is so hard. Man, I got to do this. Man, this is tough. I don't know which direction to go. Yeah. But you just took the bull by horns to say, okay, this has to be done. But yet you almost like worked full time, took care of yourself financially as well yeah. by being aggressive. Like yeah, sensations wasn't just the only thing you work. Like what other things no. have you done like, I, um, to, to propel yourself for the next level? Well, sensations is almost like a cap on a point that I started, like when I was 16, I knew I was going to go to college. It was basically, it was painted on the wall. I knew I was going to do it. Um, I realized that the owner of the landscape company I still work at, he was a bar manager. And I'm like, you know, if I side with this guy and play my cards right, at some point he's probably going to own his own bar, be in the position to let me start training as a bar back or a bartender. You know, I, I, I had some serious forethought into it because I saw bartending as one an outlet for meeting people, which is important. It's more not about what you know, it's who you know. Bars are amazing places for that. I've met some very you know wealthy, smart individuals. And what you have to do is you have to think it through. So I knew I wanted to, I knew I wanted to be an engineer, but I always wanted to be a bartender. I didn't realize that I would love it as much as I did when I was younger, but I saw this opportunity. So I was offered more money for other summer jobs. Like mind you, the first two or three years I were, I got I started working there the day after I got my driver's license because then I could drive myself to work. The first day of work, we shoveled stone for over 12 hours straight in 93 degree heat without a single break. That was my first day of working for someone other than like a family friend, washing somebody's boat, doing stuff like that. Yeah, side jobs, yeah. So I don't know if that like conditioned me because the next day we went mowing and I guarantee I have not had a more difficult day than my first day ever at work. I've never... I come even close to that. I've worked long hours, but I'm talking labor intensive. Like you get home, you pull in the driveway, you don't even make it to the shower. You're asleep on the couch within five minutes. Mm -hmm. That's how exhausted I was. I remember coming home the first day. My mom goes, you know, how was it? Cause it was a family friend. She used to work with him. He was a student teacher. My mom's a teacher and he had the summer business. She goes, how was it? I go, it was awful. I was like, I don't want to go back. I was like, that was one of the worst days of my life. She goes, what do you mean? I go, we shoveled stone in 90 plus degree heat for 12 hours straight. We didn't take a lunch break. You know, we, we took some water breaks, but that I was like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> but she's like, you know, my mom goes, I always go to my mom for like big decisions, you know, at least consult her because I don't think I think in the most logical sense where my mom is more even keel norm, what I would, you would quote unquote normal. Yeah. So I go to her like, and I was like, um, you know, what do you think? She's like, well, go a second day, try it out. And, you know, if it's not as bad as the first, you know, you would never know if you don't go back. And I go, okay, you know, I'm down to try it again. I'm not dead, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, you're waking up. Waking up. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, A little sore. <laughs> go in and the next day we're mowing and I was running a line trimmer, which was cake. I mean, did that around the house, lived on a big property. So and then from that point on, I've worked for him. It's been, this is my eighth season. I've run the truck, like the mowing portion of the company for... Since I was 19, halfway through when I was 19, which would be halfway through my third season, um, 
I kind of just took initiative. We need, I was like, I can do it. I can drive the truck. I'll do. It. I'll take care of everything, and I'll do it exactly how you wanted to do it because I worked for, under you for three years. I know exactly you know, how to do yeah, it. You've had everything set up. Um, so I ran into that, and I, I mean, I've been in charge of like a hundred plus contracts a week for you know five seasons now. So the first three were like basically training. The last five were you know okay, do it, and it's been pretty successful without many any serious major problems. You no. Know, truck accidents yeah, no. back wood, yeah I mean we've had horrible employees and that that's that's a whole nother book I could explain well yeah now how, do you, how many crews do you run um so I usually do one or two we transition and then um the owner will go out and do let's say a place need mulch she'll go and organize those projects because I I always kind of just felt gravitated towards the mowing because it's less labor intensive obviously and yeah, if, if you're the head of the crew you're driving a truck and you're driving a lawnmower and occasionally you got to pick up a trimmer and once in a while it's really easy work. So I was offered more money and such, but I saw I had the forethought enough to be like, I think this is a more logical path to my end goal, which was being a bartender in college. Because if you bartend in college, you're talking at least a hundred dollars a night, and you know that's far better than minimum wage at a pizza shop delivering pizzas, which I also did for five years. And it's under the table. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really. It's very under the table. Well, some, I mean, we we do pay. Of course, sure. you, of course, you pay taxes. I'm only teasing, but yeah. yeah, no. But it's good income as a college kid. Yeah, I mean, getting cash payment every night is huge. I mean, that's and then when I was so I started landscaping. Would do that seasonally for three years. When I was 18, um, I started working at a Marks in Hamlin, delivering pizzas, and then um, I worked there until I moved out into Honeywell Falls. Then I worked at pizza shops and kitchens, washing dishes. All while, like, every time spring would come along, I'd quit those jobs, maybe cut down my hours, maybe work Saturdays or something, and then do the landscape thing. Um, it wasn't until... But I really wasn't putting my nose down. I was doing enough to get by. I didn't have to worry about my, my rent or my tuition or my books or stuff. Those things were covered. But uh, basically, however, any other money I wanted to have, whether I wanted to go out and, you know eat <laughs> if i wanted to eat i was responsible for yeah, it if so i wanted to be social have fun. i wanted to be social if i wanted to you know buy a motorcycle buy a motorcycle that was all on me if i wanted to go snowboarding i would have to pay that out of pocket like these were the things so i realized the more i worked the more you know fun i could have because my mom always called it she's like i'll take you can do that but if you want to have fun you want to go out to eat you want to smoke weed or whatever that's all on you and i'm not bailing you out if you screw that up put yourself in a hole and i was like okay <laughs> and so she's, sounds like your mom's pretty chill she's, she's pretty chill she's like as long as your grades are above you know what my as long as you're passing your classes and you're headed on the right track and you're not skipping class and doing all what whatnot she's like you know i'll help you out but i'm only i'm only helping you out like if you, you obviously need a phone so i can call you and make sure you're all right so i'll pay for the phone plan but if you want unlimited data you better be k- kicking me 40 dollars a month to pay for that it's not it's not a free thing if you want to play xbox I love it. You Ma- do it. mom's yeah. giving you the limits i love it yeah i mean mom would give me what i needed to survive and if i wanted to experience life like i, I wasn't i didn't have, i wasn't financially back going to spring cabo on spring break mom would have never allowed that so it was whatever work I could do that would fund the fun. And when living in Honolulu Falls, I was 45 minutes away from Bristol. So you bet your ass I wanted a season pass. Heck yeah. <laughs> how, how many years did you have a season pass? Uh, two. Two. Oh, um, man. Perfect. Yeah. So I, I, well, as long as I lived down there, I had a season yeah, pass. Yeah. And, but that allowed me to go. But the season pass cost $500. Even for, or maybe a little yeah, over junior, four. Yeah, yeah. Four to 500, yeah. Yeah. So that money doesn't come out of nowhere. So you better go get a job and you better work. So then, you know, anytime I could work without outside of class, I would work. 
sometimes I worked too much and it would start to hinder class and I'd have to be like, go to my boss and be like, I got to cut down a little bit on, uh, you know, closing shifts during the weekday when I got class at 8 a.m. Um, but actually, I mean, my whole work ethic kind of stems from like specific moments. Uh, at one point, I was basically wrongfully arrested on weed possession. I was out on my street bike riding with a bunch of buddies. I always was very cautious with who I rode with, would kind of ask and be like, is your stuff legal? Like, are you on a legal bike? They'd be like, oh, yeah, no problem. Friend now, of, you're talking about plates, registration, like insurance, right? Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Or non-suspended driver's license. Mm-hmm. Okay. Important. Yeah, think about that, yeah. Important <laughs> factors. Well, because yeah. I'm, I was, I didn't really start smoking until I was 19, and that was to combat the fact that I've, like, what I've come to know is pretty severe anxiety. So I wouldn't be able to sleep through the night. So why I started smoking weed, I was at a party a couple times and someone passed me a joint. I'd smoke and I'd pass right out in the middle of the party. Packed room. I hadn't gotten a good night's sleep in three weeks. Uh And I'd smoke and fall asleep. And I was like, I noticed a trend. So every time I go to a party, I'd smoke and I'd fall asleep in the middle of the party. I was like, wait a second. I found my solution. Uh Now, was the anxiety because you always had so much going on or is it something else? I th- well, from my understanding of anxiety now, which I had a horrible narrative on um, up until about six months ago when I finally started like addressing it, mm-hmm. is that it's actually a chemical imbalance in your body called, from the chemical cortisol. So I don't know if it's higher levels or lower levels, but it puts your body into, what anxiety is, is putting your body into almost to a panic state of like fight or flight. So what, and some people have specific triggers. Um, you know, I don't know exactly because I'm not a triggerable person. Mm-hmm. It just comes on randomly and then it also will affect your um your appetite which i had trouble eating a lot like mm-hmm. i'm a big guy people would be always be like why don't you eat more and i was like i'm just not hungry and what actually was keeping me from eating was my anxiety because mm-hmm. um, it's a natural anxiety where it's not triggerable it's just something that is i haven't gone on medication for it or anything like that yet i'm still trying to feel it out and see if it's something i can combat um and you think cannabinoids have been helping with that actually my uh, my counselor, I guess, would be considered. It's not a true therapist, but it's more counseling to give you like some guidance, not religious counseling. Yeah. Oh, great. That. No, that's good. Just someone to talk to and express from an outsider's looking in um, point of view. Mm-hmm. Great idea. And uh, I went to do that because end of college, you know, there's a lot of changes. I was in college for five years. Coming out of college is pretty stressful. I had a girlfriend at the time, broke up with her. And I was like, I need a little bit of an outsider's looking in view on my mind. And what he told me was basically through music and heavy cannabinoid use, I've been suppressing like my episodes of anxiety. So if I was super stressed out, I'd just go home and smoke a joint. Mm-hmm. I would think it's just normal stresses from everything going on. But in fact, it was actually just my natural anxiety that was going off that I never recognized as a problem because I was under the impression that uh, anxiety was more mental-based than a chemical imbalance. And now that I understand that, it makes a lot more sense to me. So six months... What have you done to change in six months to improve it? Um, things got really good. And now with the stre- different stresses of like the owner of one of the bars went out of town. So I was in charge, um, bad employees, you know, there's highs and lows to it. So mm-hmm. if I'm doing good and everything in life is falling into place, you know, as it appears to be, then it minimizes itself. But the more like walls you kind of hit, like my issue with Brockport right now, trying to like just send me the piece of paper, I completed the classes, like let's get this over with. Yeah, let's move on. That adds to like my subconscious anxiety. So then it allows it, it kind of rears its ugly face a little bit more because it's closer to the door. Mm -hmm. And and that's similar for me, I would say. Yeah, I I like not to have loose ends. Uh, I like to make sure everything's closed up and done so you can move to the next. Having those loose ends only 
Yeah, I mean, I treat my personal life in the same exact way. It's, uh, someone goes to me and goes, oh, Johnny's got a problem with you. You know what I'm doing next in the next five minutes? Calling Johnny or going to his house and talking to him. I go, what's the problem? Because I'm not a person that upsets people. I don't think it's right to do. I don't think I don't believe in holding grudges. I mean, if you want to hate me, you can hate me. I'm not going to respect you for it. But that's as far as I'm going to go. Yeah, at the end of the day, I don't care if you like me, but as long as you respect me. So yeah. if you don't respect me, at least we got to square that away because then maybe I did something, you took something wrong. Yeah. I mean, but, I've made yeah, mistakes. I've made oh, gosh. huge mistakes that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and it's affected a lot of personal relationships with people. And I, and when I've realized those mistakes, I always go back and explain myself, explain the new position, explain the new thought process on it. And it's like, you know, when I was younger and I had a girlfriend at another school and this new um, student came from Russia. She was adopted in the United States and she had a crush on me. I didn't appropriately tell her, I have a girlfriend, you know, I'm not interested. Because I was interested. She was a beautiful girl. But what I was was an immature dick that was going around being like ignoring her or not answering questions. So, you know, three years later, I got in contact with her. I was like, listen, I've realized where I was wrong and I want to apologize. Let me take you out to dinner or a movie or whatever. You know, just make up for me being an immature little little kid. Big thing to do. And no, we never dated and fell in love, but I felt right for, you know, I felt I owed her that at least that much. The least I could do because I feel like that earns on people. It was, I was her first crush coming into America and I treated it like shit. I was like, am I ever going to make up for that? No, but I'm going to do at least what I can in my mind um, to make it a little bit better, at least improve her um, outlook on me because I don't think I was in the right at all. But simple things like that are important. It is I like to used to like tell people I think I burned a career bridge maybe once or you know a job or something and it was because my house I had an interview at a place and I got my house inspected that day and yeah. it turned out that ran over and I missed the interview and to me that's the only thing I've ever burned a bridge so yeah. to speak the old, but it wasn't even within your control slightly like yeah. I probably could have like said I gotta go but yeah at the end of the day it wasn't um, but. I'm that critical of myself, right? It sounds like you hold yourself to a higher standard probably than anybody else would hold you. I mean, I if I'm going to do anything, it's going to be to the maximum. If I'm putting speakers in my car, it's going to be the best I can afford. If I'm going to sit down and practice drums, I'm going to play as hard as I can for that amount of time I have. If I'm going to go ride my bike, I'm going to ride it hard. If I'm going to work on my bike, I'm going to learn everything about my bike so I can work on it the right way. If I'm going to bartend, I'm going to learn from anyone I can get my hands on that has more experience from me than me. Um, to learn from them because I think it's important. You have to gravitate towards people that know more than you because I don't know what I don't know until I don't know it. Until someone tells me a new fact, I go, oh, that's true. Wow, um, never thought of it that way. Like what I learned about anxiety. But, you know, that's what you have to do. Anything you do, but it also does stem into like personal things like, oh, you know, if I'm going to ride my bike, I'm really going to ride my bike, which has got me in a, you know, a little bit of trouble, but I mostly skated through years later. So what's your motorcycle now? I have, I've calmed it down a little bit, but I have a built 2000 Dyna Superglide um, that have calmed down because I started on a Z1000, which is an incredibly fast bike, but it's a lot more than, you know, what someone would consider a new rider. I bought it at 19, it was wrecked, and I rebuilt the whole thing myself. Mm-hmm. Patched the gas tank, learned how to, taught myself how to braze, you know, bend sheet metal, paint, and made it look nice. In your garage, your family garage, your shop, or what? It was in the shitty garage at my shitty house out in Huntington Falls. Wow, cool. And I learned how to do that and got it on the road, and that was my first bike. People like, oh, you're crazy. I go, well, I grew up on dirt bikes and four-wheelers and snowmobiles my whole life. Yeah. You know, this is just 
going to another platform. I'm not, I'm not fresh in the seat. You know, I had a dirt bike in the garage too that I would ride in the field and ride through the woods. Mm-hmm. So I had some experience on it and that's how I, I would transfer my skills. But when I bought that bike, I didn't go to the three night. I didn't even ride. I didn't ride with other people until I put 15,000 miles on it because I wasn't confident in my own skills to put someone else's life in danger because people don't think about it. But you're riding three feet from someone at 60 miles an hour. If you don't know what you're doing, you could kill them and you could kill yourself. That's not safe to do. Amen. So I lived out in Huntington Falls, which is very close to the Finger Lake. So I'd go out and just ride by myself. If there was an empty parking lot at night that was lit, I'd go out and just practice slow turns. You got to learn how to ride slow to ride fast. And I did that for the first six months of owning that bike. And then once I was confident enough in it, I started riding with other people, other friends that had motorcycles. That friend group grew. And, you know, then I ended up joining a bit of like a, we didn't call it, what would we call it? Couldn't call it a club. Organization. Or we had a riding <laughs> crew. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, ride night. And, you know, that grew to like 85 people. I mean, pretty like 45 core members. And we'd go and cause a lot of trouble, running from the cops, doing wheelies, all kinds of things you're not supposed to do. But we would, we even got to the point where we would have to vet out the new riders because what we were doing was extremely dangerous. We, every single person that rode that crew, we've talked about it, accepted it was either you're going to live through this, you're going to die or get seriously injured, or you're going to end up in jail. Those are your three options. The other two that weren't lived through this were the most likely ones. And we still did it. You know, I would come home from work at 7 p.m., wouldn't even take my work boots off, pull my shorts over my boots, put jeans on, put my riding jacket on it, and I would go riding till 2 a.m. every single night that I could. As long as it wasn't raining, that's what I was doing. I was out in Rochester doing wild stuff that I would not recommend anyone do. Was it worth it? No. It was not worth <laughs> it at all. No. But How was, many crashes? None. Not on the street bike. Knock on wood. Got very, very, very close. I've had more near-death experiences than I could count if I wanted to because eventually it just became everyday thing. You know, you're doing 120 and a car pulls out in front of you. Got around him. Oh, cool. You don't think about it. Run from the cops. Yep, they didn't catch me this time. You don't think about it. It became such extreme things became so normalized in my life. All while I'm going through school, full time, working like a shitty pizza shop job. Mm-hmm. I'm out running on bikes with full-blown criminals like drug dealers and murderers and stuff like that. People are on totally stolen bikes. It was a wild time to be 19. But I, because I was, I mean, I'm inherently a level of crazy, they respected me. Like they didn't question it. Like, I don't know, everyone jokes are like, oh, if you see a white guy in the hood, he's probably a pretty badass. I was no badass. I was just had no fear of death. And I still don't have fear of death. But the most, what I learned through those years is the most you truly feel alive is when you're really riding that line between life and death. People ask me, I did, when I went to Stowe this year, I got myself clocked about 50 miles an hour going down down there. And I know yep. I've been faster than that. But at the end of the day, any of friends and family are, are say, they're like, what the, why, what, why? Because it's me pinching myself to say I'm alive. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's, that's when that, I need to feel it. Like, okay. When you're, I mean, if you're a person with anxiety, what actually I was talking to my therapist, he was explaining why we like instances like that. It's because your mental thought becomes so pure on focusing on not dying. Amen. That everything else falls away. It's almost like a tunnel vision to the one thing. So, I mean, I think the fastest I was clocked at was 198 miles an hour on uh, because I eventually bought a ZX10 and built the hell out of that. <laughs> it was a dumb fast bike. And but in that moment when you're going 190, let's say not 198, but 190, you were clear and you were focused, weren't you? Yeah, because the only thing you're focused on is not dying. 
you're not thinking about, oh, I got to pull the clutch in here. I got to lean this way. You're Pure focus is don't die, and everything else goes into autopilot. Your brain, you don't think about what you're doing anymore. Your brain just does it. And there's a certain, like, it's almost a high. And I feel like people with anxiety or even some level of depression is they enjoy that because you're not thinking about, oh, am I going to pass this class? Oh, what does that girl think about me? Oh, am I going to pass this job? With people anxiety, those thoughts are running through your head a million times a day, a million different scenarios. And somebody texts you back a different way than they normally do. Did I piss them off? That's that's like a common anxiety oh, thought. That's funny. Like, yeah. oh, they added a period, but they never knew use uh, you know periods in their text. That's weird. I wonder what's up with them. Like, I'm people with anxiety notice those subtle changes in demeanor, even if it's through a text message. You can almost read someone's emotion, and then your mind but goes you think, into possibilities. Okay, so anxiety is part of that, but don't you think that that's also because you're high processing? Some people don't even notice that little stuff. I think it's you a certain level fast, of awareness. Man. You, you're you're very aware. You you know that, right? Yeah. Like well, you more have to aware be. than most. I, I I feel like it's a necessity. You gotta if you I don't know. I've been manipulated in the, when I was younger into thinking a certain way. I was bullied because people thought I was homosexual and I wasn't. So I had to go through all the torment of you know being gay and being beaten down for it. But I was never gay. Mm-hmm. So it was it was massively confusing. So what you do is you when you you know it takes pressure to make a diamond. Mm-hmm. But what you do is you start to know, notice things. You notice trends. You notice change in mood. Because what I happened was like a bunch of close friends turned on me and kind of excommunicated me from the group. Mm-hmm. Middle school stuff, not like it doesn't happen. It happens to a lot of people. I'm not saying I'm special because of it. Yeah. But how I learned from it was different is that I started watching people's trends and watching how they react, how they communicate with people, teachers, you know, principals. And you kind of get an edge up on them because they don't think... You know, ever, you ever had a person, like your parents come in and they don't tell you what you did wrong, but they try to get you to admit it. If you watch their demeanor, you can read what they're doing. You just have to be aware. The whole time. Yeah, yeah, the whole time. You know exactly what they're doing. They got that smug look on them, just about to get him to say what he did. But you can play that game too. If you can read it, right? It's like, um, I'm not a big fan of TV shows, but there's one TV show I used to watch, The Mentalist. Yeah. Because... I always picked up on subtleties because my whole life, that's all I've ever done. I, you know, being the oldest grandson in a family, I had to watch all the grandkids. Like, yeah. Brian, why did you let that happen out there? You were out there playing. I can't have fun? Yeah. Like, like where's the fun coming to play for me? So I've always had to process fast business, family business. So tell me about your family dynamic a little bit. Because I'm, I'm curious. Family dynamic. Yeah, like you got parents, brothers, sisters, you an only child. What's up? I have two younger sisters, but I kind of operated. as a, I mean, once I became old enough to, I wouldn't live at my own house. It wasn't because like house was super hostile. I mean, dad's classic blue collar, you know, got to get what you got to work for what you owe. You know, if you screw up the most minor thing, you're a dumbass type inference. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of pressure, you know, coming down to not screw up, you know, try to be rather progressive in anything you're doing. You, you expects. You know, he wanted a football player son, didn't enjoy the sport, so I always got ragged on for that because I, like, gravitated lacrosse. You know, my mom was, like, the an angel. She's a school teacher, um, you know, physical education, always had a focus on, like, sports and things like that. Huge. What district? Uh, Brighton. Brighton, cool. Yep. And she was, like, she was the type of person that would dedicate her Saturday to go help out the Special Olympics, still does it. My dad's the type of person that goes on a Saturday to go down to his boat you know, drink a little bit mm-hmm. or a lot of it, depending yeah. on what you consider a lot. Of course. It's all perspective. Yeah. So it's, they were, you know, they never really got along that well, but they had three kids. So they're like, we're going to tough it out as long as we can until, you know, we're all basically out of the house or at least very close. And then they 
parted ways and did what they actually want to do. I, I was we la- laughed about it because my pop, my mom texted me. She's like, "I need we need to have a ma- meeting at the house." And I'm like, "Okay." And our family dog died like the week before, so we have a meeting. And she's like, "Oh, we need to have a meeting in the house." I was like, "I can't make it. I'm I, my business. My schedule is packed. I was working." Mm-hmm. She's like, "Well, you and your friends, or me and your father are getting divorced." I'm like, "About time." I was like, why didn't you do that 15 years ago? I was like, I could have told you that when I was seven that you guys weren't right for each other. I mean, it's, but they stuck it out and they raised, you know, pretty level headed. I mean, considering uh, everything. Yeah. You know, how old are your sisters? Uh, one's 19, actually, tomorrow. And the other one is 22. Cool. Exciting stuff. So you guys are all about the same age. You guys get along, three of you? Yeah, now we do. But there was a lot of tension in the house because it was, you know, Pops would always be pissed off about something, whether it was the most arbitrary thing or something serious. So you kind of just tried to coast through the house as as little as, as lightly as possible. Tread lightly, get in, get out type situation, just because you didn't want to have the argument. It wasn't really like physically abusive, but you would get you fucked up, you would get ragged on pretty pretty hard. More than you'd ever want to. Right, you, know, you almost almost get bullied. If you have long hair, what are you gay now? What do you want to be like your sisters? Uh, you wear like a it. colorful shirt. Where'd you steal that? Your sister's closet type, like uh, very arbitrary yeah, know, just... claims because he expected you to be a man's man. And I was always an artsy kid. I mean, I'm six four, hardworking. Like you would expect me to be blue collar, but I'm quite uh, some level of intellectual, I guess. No, no doubt. Yeah, you're 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 an old soul. And. So I never really fit into those qualms, but I had to adjust my life just because you would do what made it easier. So, you know, if you were going to do anything, you're going to do the best job you could just so you couldn't be ridiculed for it. Whether even if it took you an extra hour to do it, you did it that way. And so it it wasn't extremely supportive. It was more just like pressure, pressure, pressure. Hopefully something good comes out. I don't know. I always, I kind of made the joke in recent years. It was like the one thing my father took from science was that it takes a lot of pressure and heat to make a diamond out of coal. (laughs) But I think he didn't really apply it in the proper uh, sense with his children. No, but at the end of the day, sometimes we don't have that pressure. We don't get to where we want to be. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, 16 years old, I pretty, 17 years old, I was pretty much on my own for everything because my parents split. And I got to say, probably helped make me into, I was able to be a father, right? You know, right yeah. after I graduated college easily, right? Because I was, I was on my own already. You anyways. were given a problem and you realized there's no sense in bitching about it. Never. It's you just have to start to come up with a plan. And that's what I learned through multiple years and random hurdles that I've had to come across that I'd never expected. Like I got arrested on a class D felony at one point for weed possession. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So one of the things, obviously, June 20th of this year, and then Cuomo finally signed a law the decriminalization measure, right? So I'm curious um, of what happened to you, and I'm, I'm thinking in my head, it should be expunged at this point, I think. Now, well, actually, anything- everything got reduced down, which is part of the story. Mm-hmm. Is So one day where it's like, it would be three years ago, I think two weeks ago, three years since, um, me and a bunch of boys, we had a house party the night before, all the riding buddies. Like, this is when I was deep, in tight with those guys. We'd have a party every Saturday night. We'd go out riding every single night of the week except for Saturdays. That was the night we drank and we hung out. No one rode because we didn't condone any level of drinking and riding. Oh, so you guys never drank and ride? No. That's awesome. And and it wasn't just because of my age because they'd be like, oh, we should go out and get a drink sometime, but not on the bikes because what we were doing was so dangerous that we couldn't trust someone being intoxicated with us. If A couple of the guys did drink, and they would be excommunicated from the group. If you rode way too recklessly within the group, obviously we were riding reckless, but there's even another level to it that's not considering your friend that's riding three feet away from you. 
you know, if you want to go run and do wheelies down traffic, that's one thing. But if you want to start swerving side to side and you're not that good at wheelies and you're cutting people off and you're, you know, setting down in front of them or you're getting in their way, you, you were removed and you were excommunicated. You weren't allowed to ride with us. Um, because we still had our own well-being. We didn't want, we knew what level of danger we were putting ourselves into, but we didn't want another person to be able to influence that danger that was cognitively part of it. There's a code you had within it, basically. Yeah, there was, there was a set of rules, and like mm-hmm. there was like even like an unspoken like indoctrination policy. Um, obviously, one, you weren't a cop. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty important. Yeah, number one, yeah. So like, you, we pretty much vetted out most people for, you know, a month or two before we really let them, you know, become part of the crew or the club or whatever you want to call it. It was just, allow you to ride with you. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day. A, on a regular basis. Like yeah. if you want to meet up for a big ride, you could come for that. If you want to go out to the log cabin in Maston, you could come there, but the way back we would always fly. We call it wolf pack riding five to six, like anywhere from three to six bikes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely balls out all the way back, back to Charlotte back. beach. Oh, cool. From Menden. Yeah. I love it. So, so we the cops flying. didn't know any about that. They didn't, I mean, they didn't pick up on that trend. <laughs> oh, they definitely picked up on that trend, but the, you're talking about a bike that is insanely capable. I mean, it's fast. Like, if you bought, if you were on a ZX10 or an R01 or a CBR1000, these are all, like, the pinnacles of engineering for those years from major companies like Honda. Like, that's where their technology comes from to build a Honda Civic. In sense, it's from their motorcycles, their engines, and different facets of that. Obviously, they're separate. So companies. would you go 590, 490, 390 to show that? Yeah. We'd run that. We call it running the nineties. So we go uh, three ninety, four ninety to five ninety, or we go all the way down three ninety, all the way down, and then up the far right, then down one hundred four. We'd go down to Rand Beach and snake through there um, late at night. I mean, we That's we were awesome. called out. We they had us clocked. I think we had seventeen bikes doing over one hundred and fifty miles an hour one day coming down five thirty one. And the cops laughing as he's telling you this later on, or, or no? I mean, we, we we learned is. <laughs> Uh, the, the Monroe County Firewire is a Twitter account and it displays like the, the radio chatter um, as it's happening. So we'd start play. We realized we got on it a couple of times. We're like, I think this is us. And the, so we'd go out and be like, let's try to get on tonight. So we'd go out and run and then we'd go back on Twitter and be like, yep, there we are. Ha <laughs> ha. Got him again. <laughs> That's so funny. They got to know you're watching that too now. At the end I mean, it, it's so cool. It's, it's, there's so many like funny inferences of well, I mean, how close they got to getting us, but never could because they just, you, the thing is, is you can't just get a plate. You, if you're in a chase, you have to take, you have to follow them until they stop going in their house and then you can arrest them. But if they take off, you never got a plate number. All you have is a description, black bike, black jacket. There's literally not a single, they could see you the next day and they can't arrest you. If you're following legal oak, because they can't prove that you're the person under the helmet, mm-hmm. and that's the biggest. I mean, I, I think it's a stupid rule, because they came. I mean, they were knocking on my door. They knew exactly who I was, where I was, but there was no way they could arrest me. They're like, "Oh, do you own a bike?" I go, "No." They're like, "Oh, that's funny. We see you all around all the time." And I'm like, "Yeah, not me." I was like, "My roommate's got a bike." <laughs> like, you can just play stupid. Such if a you, game. Because it, the thing is, is we would study the law, so we'd know how to dance around it mm-hmm. so well, you have to when you're playing like that right yeah i mean i at one point the state troopers had a task force assigned to find me like after i got my once i went up to the big bike the zx10 because they had me clocked at over 150 five times in a week and how i found out that my roommate's trailer got stolen from a shop around the corner and they uh-huh. saw his black bike to go We're looking for a guy with a black bike and, you know he was on this road going this fast this road going this way so i'm at home i just got home from riding my roommate goes 
hey, where were, where were you last week? Uh, like on these days, were you out here, here, and here? I was like, yeah, that was me. He's like, yeah, the cops know. They're like, they're looking for you. And I was like, well, where are they looking? And the cop told them they're looking south five and 20. I go, well, I'm not riding south five and 20 for the rest of the season. Yeah, why would you? And it was <laughs> like, they literally told, they just happened. Some by random pe- dude. By pure coincidence that State Trooper was taking the report for the stolen trailer, happened to be looking for me and happened to talk, chat, chatter too much and gave up his whole their whole process into it. So I just laid low for the rest of the season, and there's no problem. Yeah, it goes away. All right, so back to the story about how you got busted. So night before, at a party, I had some oil on me. I had like maybe a half gram, which at well, would be three years ago was still a misdemeanor. So it's still anything. A half a gram? Yeah, I think it, it was been, still. Yeah. A, it was yeah. still, I think. Like it was a, a misdemeanor, yeah. It's yeah. under that two-ounce policy that it was, yeah. Well, the felony charge is... Seven grams and above, quarter ounce at the time. So we're going in the Stony Brook. We obviously caused a little bit of ruckus coming down 390. So they probably had a little bit of heading. I mean, we were doing wheelies and whatnot. Nothing, there wasn't a lot of traffic out. It was a Sunday morning, you know, maybe a couple of cars. So we'd slow down when we go around the cars, speed up a little again. And it was probably the best day I've ever had wheeling. That was the first time I had over three miles on one wheelie, which was awesome. Oh, wow. It was a really cool experience. I really had it down. It's great balance. Really bad end of the day, though. Mm. (laughs) So we come into the park and we all pay and then before we even come through the gate the cop stops us and she's like i gotta run all your information we're like why she's like because you're coming to the park that's not legal it was a legal stop um so she starts running information i'm under the impression that everyone's clean but a friend of a friend was there he was riding on seven license suspensions so he gets arrested and uh i had my backpack in my buddy's car because he followed us in his car we're going swimming at stony brook Mm -hmm. and uh she says to, it was just the one uh, park police state trooper. She goes to the, like my buddy, she's like, you know, because you are associated with them, we're going to search the car and we're going to search everyone. So I'm sitting there. And I'm, I'm like, I realize I'm like, shit, I have oil in my backpack in his car. Dude doesn't smoke. Now you're talking about a cartridge or? No, just like free oil. Because okay. um, I would, on the, like the old school vapes with the mechanic, the dripper yeah. mods. I don't, not everyone's familiar with it, but if you like look dabbing. at it. I would basically dab it on mm-hmm. the fly with my regular vape. So I'd always keep a little square in my wallet. And she goes, we're going to search the car. I'm like, shit. So I go in and get my backpack out, act like I'm getting something else out. And we were sitting under these trees, and there's little holes in the ground. So I just like st- took the bag and stuffed it down a little bit. Didn't realize that the park manager, because she was 100 yards away, you know, reading my buddy his rights, putting him in handcuffs. She wasn't paying attention to us at all. Park manager sees me and snitches the cop, points right to where I put it. She's like, what is this? I'm like, well, she's like, it smells like weed. And I go, yeah, it's weed. I mean, there, I had a little bag of regular flour too. She threw that in the trash. And she was like, well, I, I got to book you for this if this test positive for THC. And I was like, okay. T- pulls out the like test kit. She charges me with a class D felony, criminal possession of a controlled substance in the third degree, I believe it was. Unbelievable. Because she didn't read down two lines that it was a misdemeanor, a ticketable offense. I didn't know that either. I didn't. I wasn't well aware enough of oil laws. Of the laws, yeah. Um, so I get booked and go to county <laughs> out in Dan's. This was Dansville, so it's Steuben County Jail. I get booked. I call my buddy, my roommate. I'm like, I need you to go get my bike, and I need you to bail me out of jail. He's like, well, I'm going to get dropped off at Stony Brook. Ride your bike to the jail, and then I'm riding, bitch back to roster i don't think he realized it was 140 miles point to point uh-huh. from stupid county jail to our house yeah so 
it was maybe not 120, but it was it was like over an hour ride. Yeah. It was it was a long. Well, I know ride. it is. Heck yeah, I know where it is. And so while I'm in the cop car, like they had to book us at Stony Brook in the in the visitor center. They yeah, had to right shut there. down the visitor center and do our fingerprints and take like mug shots. And this is a busy 90 degree summer day. Silly. There's my best friend happened to be coming through the entrance, not even knowing I was there. While I was handcuffed behind the cop car next to. The he goes, yeah, I saw those cops. Then I saw your friends. Because I had my phone the whole time. I sweet talked. It was a female officer. Uh-huh. Kind of took advantage of my charisma uh-huh. to just make my time easier. So I was the whole time, even though I was. You're like, okay, whatever. Super polite, super nice, super cooperative. So I got to keep my hat on. I got to get handcuffed in front of my body. It was against police policy. She even put on the lights and sirens for me in a back road on the way to the jail. And then while she was dropping me off at the jail, she goes, I really wish we could have met in a different setting. This was like my cop that's it. arresting yeah. me for a felony, yeah. dropping me off at jail. That's her word. And my buddy was in the cop car next in the seat next to me crying because he was freaking out. I was You're just relaxed. thinking. I was yeah. relaxed because I was like, I'm already arrested. Me yeah. freaking out, me crying isn't going to help the situation at all. No. My buddy or friend of a friend, I should say, I never really liked the kid. He's sitting there crying. I'm like, you're facing a misdemeanor. I go, I just got arrested for a felony. I think I was like, you got nothing to be crying around, yeah, buddy. You need to just shut the hell up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we get back to the jail and I get in. My roommate bails me out and I come home. And uh, you know, I get home and I look up my charge. I read it. I was like, must be in possession of you know seven grams. I was like, there was no way there was seven grams there. I don't care if you count, if you weighed the paper, the wax paper was on. There was Everything. no possible way. I was like, sweet. I was like, so at the minimum, I mean, a misdemeanor. Yeah. Well, the problem is Dansville Town Courts uses Monroe County Crime Labs to do all the sense that they don't have their own labs. So yeah, it has to get shipped up. out. Mm-hmm. So I had to hire a lawyer like I'm facing a felony. So I go to the most expensive, like I called my roommate whose dad was a judge of, at the time of the town of Rush. I'm like, I need a lawyer. He's like, I got a lawyer for you. So I go to him, high rise office in downtown Rochester, super cool guy. Mm-hmm. But my retainer was six thousand yeah. dollars. Just going and talk with him for the original conversation, I had to bring three hundred dollars in cash for the first hour, and I had to pay a six thousand dollar retainer. Yeah, mind you, my so my car charges didn't get dropped to a misdemeanor until two days before my first court date. So the retainer's already paid, the lawyer's already paid out two grand. Unbelievable. So if it was just a misdemeanor off the bat, I would never hire that. I wouldn't need a three hundred dollar to four hundred dollar an hour. You yeah, know, lawyer. You could, yeah, you could use public defender. I could use a public done. defender and gotten down. Mm-hmm. I mean, the good thing with the lawyer is he actually knew the DA down there and he got it down to an ACD. So I had to do, it was like a one year, it was either six months or one year. I don't even remember anymore. But I had to, it was like 50 hours community service. Um, I had to prove I wasn't an addict. So I had to go through like a three hour, $200. Um, prove you're not an addict of cannabinoids. Yeah. <laughs> And it was funny because they try to trap you into other substance abuses. So they start bringing up alcohol. And I wasn't even 21 yet. So I just, I, obviously I drank. I had to lie through my, the whole time I had to lie through my tre- teeth. So that's why I don't lie anymore. It's that whole experience, the court experience, I had to lie so much just to skate through the system so I could get my ACD and not have, a, like a ACD turns into a sealed record mm-hmm. and it's gone. I mean, unless I'm trying to be an FBI agent, it's not going to come up. Even if I wanted to go in the military, I don't believe their background checks would um, unseal that record. But, I mean, it cost me $4,200. A half gram of oil cost me $4,200. On technicality, it was an illegal stop 
an illegal search, an illegal seizure of the substance. I was wrongfully charged. I was wrongfully booked in jail. But the problem was, as I was already $4,000 into a lawyer, and if I took the trial, yeah, I could have gotten and walked away clean with no ACD, but it would have cost me another four grand. That's what my lawyer even said. He goes, we could go to court and win this, no problem. He's like, the police report's screwed up on how she found it on you. The police report's screwed up on why she really stopped you. He's like, we could easily beat this. He goes, but it's going to cost. I was like, he's like, we have to drive an hour and a half to Dansville. Him going to my one court five, was appearance. that four or five hours? Is four yeah. hours at three hundred bucks an hour? <laughs> yeah, it uh, it was it cost Couple me twelve hundred dollars for him to go to one court date, and that was the one where we pleaded down to an ACD. I was like, if I want to fight that criminally, we're talking about ten thousand, fifteen thousand dollars between him, you know, preparing all the information, proving this court arguments, judge decision, or lawyer, or I don't even know if it would go to a jury, but all these things would come into favor and it would cost me three times as much with essentially the same result. And just think about how stupid that system is yeah. and how much that system is a waste of money and time. Oh, it's insane amount of waste of time. I mean, the thing was, is they were prepping for a murder case before I would come in for him to worry about a half gram of oil. What a fucking waste of time that is. It's so pointless. Even the DA down there should have been like, this is ridiculous. Like yeah. they see meth labs down there. I mean, they got to know the yeah. difference. Uh, and I guess that's that's the one bad thing about each individual county across this great country. The actual officers that are in charge of those counties, yeah, they're only as good as the information they have in front of them. Yep, and they're not educated in some cases. I know Livingston County is not favorable to cannabis in New York State right now. Yeah, and it stems right from the sheriff. And I've seen the sheriff at an event, and his arguments are not logic based. They're, no, they're old, old scare arguments. tactics. Yeah, dare dare yeah. tactics. Uh, and it's too bad. I think Livingston County will eventually, you know, come on board with the rest of the state. Um, yeah. But there are going to be counties like that across this country that are slow, yeah. and it's crazy. It is. It is absolutely crazy, and it's a total waste of time. Um, for but it was it was hilarious because I was facing. I was supposed to go to California that month. I couldn't go because I was on felony bail for two months before my court date. I couldn't go to California. I couldn't leave the state. I couldn't go on trips. And Over half a gram of oil. concentrated oil, That's yep. Silly. Because so concentrated oil is considered a controlled substance still in New York State. So all you boys with your cartridges out there, be aware, or and girls, because in New York State that will still put you in jail. And the misdemeanor minimum sentencing on that, especially if you're not a first-time offender, I believe is a year to three years. With the felony, I was facing five to seven. Yeah, that's that's curious. I'm gonna have to look back at the decriminalization um, lit, I don't, the w- I th- work. I don't know if they listed flour or all. It's just flour. Matter. I I'm guarantee have to, I'm gonna it's still, that. Yeah, I'm I guarantee because I was under the impression that all I was worried about with weed was a hundred. Or it was it was right around that time that they passed the hundred dollar ticket on first offenders, okay. if as long as it was under an ounce. Under an ounce, yeah. Never looked at the oil law. Didn't realize that oil was considered a controlled substance. It's basically like if I got caught with. Essentially, it would be the same charge if I got caught with the same amount of cocaine, heroin, um, methamphetamines. Those were all, it was the same charge. If you looked under the statute for the law, those were listed under the same, all class one controlled substances synthesized in a lab. Mind you, I don't really consider pressing oil out of a plant synthesized in a lab, but that's obviously an obvious discussion that's going on right now. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, luckily. You know, make sure you're aware of your laws. Make sure you're aware of your rights. Make sure you're not being stupid. I mean, 
marijuana is still in some level of specs illegal and you can get punished for it. I don't, I think that me getting arrested was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I think it really woke me up because as soon as I was on bail, I wasn't out riding my bike like an animal. It made me step back from all the crazy things I was doing and it made me really poor. I would have $20 to my name a week to find food and put gas in my car while I'm commuting to school because um, my parents had no sympathy because I put myself in that position. And I had no sympathy because I put myself in that position. Mm-hmm. There was times that I did have that amount on me and I could have been arrested those days just as much as I could have been arrested the day I got arrested. So it was just you know maybe karma balancing out, me knowing I did something wrong and I, I consider it as part of my path. But that led just a to lesson the, learned. That led to the real drive. That was when... That next summer, I remember I had one day, and I was working with people that were like five to ten years older than me. I was in charge of them, and they wanted to leave early, but we had another property we had to do. If I stayed, it would take me like an hour and a half, two hours to do. And I just had this epiphany. I remember I was listening to Tool, actually, and I was just like kind of in some deep thought, and I was like, why don't I stay and do those? Why don't I go get that two hours overtime? I mean, I'm getting paid time and a half. Why am I not doing this? I was like, I don't want to be like those guys. I want to get out early to go do what? I don't know, play adult whatever. kickball or whatever. That Those things don't excite me. I was like, I want to work. I mean, I started that year between my bike loan that was out, the money I owed my parents for the lawyer. And I think I had another debt, but it, it summed up to like, it was either eight or $12,000 for a kid who was working at pizza shops. And I finally was, I was like, this is time to stop feeling sorry for yourself. You need to get over your bullshit and just do. Stop worrying about, oh, I'm not going to be able to hang out with this friend on this weekend. I'm not going to be able to go out drinking on Friday night. Screw that. You don't want to be poor? Go and fucking work. And work as much as you can. That fall semester, I ended up coming out and buying, putting a down payment on a BMW coupe that year, at the end of that year, for my 22nd birthday. Because right before I got charged, I turned 21. On my 22nd birthday, I bought myself a nice BMW. And you know why I did that? Because I fucking worked. I would work 65, 66, 70 hours a week while being in class full time. This wasn't just handed to me. But people always be like, you know, you have certain levels of privileges. Yeah, but I put myself in a hole and I climbed right out. And I yeah. d- did it just by sheer will. I'm not something special. I'm not a super, super smart person. You're working uh, late at night. You're getting up early. You're doing what you have to yeah. do. You, I did a sleep study on myself that spring to figure out how much I could work without affecting my school performance. I need and, and work performance. I need four hours of sleep to go to work. I needed six hours of sleep to go to class. If I had to test, I needed to make sure I got eight. And I needed to study. I love it. So I started chopping up my days hour by hour. Remember that fall, I would, this, was, this sounds crazy sometimes when I recite it back, I would go to class in the morning, close the bar at night, wake up, do landscaping in the morning for anywhere from eight to 13 hours, take a night class, wake up in the morning, then go to morning class, and then that afternoon I would work for another six hours at the landscape company, then I would go to my bartending shift to close the bar there. And that was every single day. I didn't have a single day off. The only time, I always joke, the only time I had off was Thursday night to 10 o'clock on Friday morning, and that was when I would go and have my fun. I had maybe a 16-hour period where I could go and drink all I wanted, and but I still need to be up in time for that 10, 11 a.m. class the next day. And that was my only time off. People go, oh, I don't want to work a five-hour week and only have two days off the week. I didn't even have a full 24 hours. I would be at work more than I would sleep. I would be at work one, just one of the jobs or I'd be in class more than I would spend time in my own home to sleep. The only time I would come home at two to three in the morning, go to bed, wake up at eight, and then go and do it all again. 
at that time I was working three 18 hour days a week, three 18 hour days a I week on top of other eight hour days throughout the week. But three of the days were 18 hours, including, and also had class, not even including, and I was taking 16 credit hours and people were like, Oh, I don't have enough time to study. Yeah, you do. Stop going to the frat parties. Amen. There's so many things you can cut out. Turn, keep that TV off. I never yeah. watched TV once in my college. I was waitering tables at Friendly's. I was cooking at Friendly's. I was cleaning the dishes at Friendly's for the manager there. She loved me. I was working in the sports information office. I was writing for the Espigonian. Yeah. I was writing for the Palladium Times. And I had a bike. I had enough car to get around. Yeah. That's what that's you had to right? do. That's all we did. It's, you don't have to be a co- poor college student. I hate that. I'm just a poor college student. No, you're a lazy college student. Thank you're you. doing the bare minimum. You want to live in the dorms. You want to eat in the mess halls. You want to fraternize with your other fellow students. You want to do the bare minimum. You don't want to work. Go play hacky sack yeah. out in the, you know, play video games in between classes. Yeah, you, that's what you want to do. So you want to be poor. It's not that you are poor. You want to be poor. If you cut all, all the other crap, you have plenty of time to work 40 to 75 hour a week. Amen. Are you going to be tired? Yes. Are you going to be sore? Yes. Are you going to need days where you're going to have to take a Sunday morning and just sleep in just because your body needs to recover? Yes. But you'll never be poor. If I want to go do something, I could, I could fly to California pretty much any time, pay for the ticket in cash. Want to why? Because I earned it. That's right. You work hard. I own two motorcycles and a nice car right now at 22 or 23. Yeah. Time flies when you're working a lot so because you fo- I earned it. You folks see why I gravitated to this guy. He's an old soul. He's well-educated. He remembers what he learned. He understands himself and where his strengths and weaknesses are so he can build that foundation for whatever comes And by the next. way, why I gravitated towards weed is because on those days where I'd get out of bartending at 3 a.m. and be like emotionally wired... Guess what brought me down and put me to bed? Weed. Without weed, none of that would have been possible. And I'm not a super pothead. I don't sound like the, oh, you know, man, I got to smoke joint in the morning. No, you don't. You don't need to smoke. Don't smoke before work. Don't smoke before class. Any other time, if you smoke before going to bed, smoke before that dinner at night. I don't know if I agree. I'll partially agree with you because me as a type A, if well, I mean, sometimes I'm saying I don't smoke, but when you're, you're that young. About, oh yeah, when you're that young, no, no, you have to stay focused. Now, if you, if me when I was young, I needed to smoke in the morning. You know why? I was type A and I was hyper, mm-hmm. and I was always anxious. Yeah. Because I had to worry about that story I had to write tonight. And oh yeah, I got to start that other story for Friday's edition. I gotta, I gotta go to class. I gotta get the friendlies. But but. It was the only thing that leveled me. So I, but I agree with you because most people can't do that and function. And they lie to themselves incessantly. Thank you. Like uh, I've dated girls throughout. Co- I always, usually I'm, I guess uh, people have called me a serial monogamous. I like to have a girlfriend. I like, because I'm so busy that I don't have time to be out talking to some girl up, dating here and there. I like to find someone I click with. I get along with well enough and I stick with them as long as it makes sense. If it stops making sense, then I'm out, go to the next Experiment, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's however you want to. Right. It's however you want to see a relationship. Mm-hmm. I've been trapped in bad ones. I've gotten you know screwed over. It's not a big deal. It's just another step in the process. You you have to. What you have to do is take every bad thing that ever happened for you, and analyze it. Think, what can I learn from that? My arrest. What did I learn from that? I don't carry oil anymore. Never. I don't care if it's cartridges. Anything like that. And no more three mile wheelies. No more three mile wheelies. <laughs> <laughs> that could come back. I still got that bike. I just got to fix it. But it's. Uh, it's the biggest thing to not being poor, obviously everyone comes across different hurdles. Some people start at far more of an advantage, but the biggest thing is you have to stop feeling sorry for yourself. Oh, I didn't get that much sleep. 
So what? What's going to happen? Oh, yeah, you might have a little shorter life and you're 75 and you're getting around in a wheelchair. So be it. Who cares? I'd rather not be broke. In the moment, let's get these experiences, especially young. Let's get these experiences in. Let's build that foundation, especially in your 20s. Let's. I worked so many hours in my 20s, I never sat still. No, and you should use your youth to your advantage to make money, meeting people, meeting experience. I mean, yes, it costs money to go out and drink at the bar, but all you got to do is work those extra four hours overtime. You just paid that bar tab. Amen. And you still had the experiences. Yeah. I mean, my life is a little stressful, or at least to the most. Most people, I'm, it's pretty common to me now. I'm still working 50 hours a week, but to me that's light because I'm used to 70. It's it's lightweight stuff. Isn't it funny that like uh, the other day I had to ride my bike to work and then ride to pick up my car, right? So yeah. my business partner says, how many miles you got you to go? I'm like, oh, it's only five. And he's like, yeah, but it's only five for you because you do way more than that. Like someone else, yeah. you say you're riding your bike five miles after they're done with work and they're like, what? You're what? Five miles? Like, you're right. It's perspective. And, and actually, the more you do and push yourself, the easier it becomes. There's been certain inspirations. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy Casey Neistat. I've heard the name, yeah. Um, that guy sleeps four hours or through he he grinded out through New York City without even a high school education and became a fairly successful individual. If you don't know about him, go to his YouTube channel, start from the back and go all the way through. The dude is an incredible story. The man wasn't got knocked off a couch when the plane hit the Twin Towers of 9/11. Yeah. He was down the block. He took footage of it happening. Crazy. Like this guy has been around and he's seen and he's done dumb shit and he admits it to it. Like I have no problem with people screwing up. We but you have do. to own it. Mm-hmm. You have to own your mistakes. I don't keep a secret that I got arrested. I don't keep a secret that I used to be a total jackass on a motorcycle. It's part of, yeah, I was dumb. I would never go, if I could go back and tell myself not to do something, I wouldn't do it. But would I go back and change anything I've done? No, because I like myself now. Once Amen. you become comfortable with yourself, you never want to change anything. It's that butterfly effect. You smile at that mirror when you look, don't you? I don't know. I still think I'm pretty ugly. No, come on. <laughs> All right, James, I got to wrap this up. This has been really enjoyable. I always yeah. love your company. I appreciate you spreading your message to everybody else. Just work hard and stop feeling sorry for yourself. That's it. You know, most people have to say, oh, let's give some advice at the end. You gave it for the last two hours, dude. So you are incredible. Just, you know, don't think you need anything. Figure out how minimalistic you can live your life when it comes to like a if you only need to, if you realize you can only only need to eat one large meal a day, do it. You just save the time of making two and eating two other meals. That's what an hour a day, hour to two hours, depending on certain people. You don't have to follow like like life like everybody else. Do it what works for yeah. you. You don't have to believe every study you hear about health and how much sleep you need. You're using it as an excuse. Oh, this sleep study says I need 11 hours of sleep when I'm 19. Does it? Do you really? Because go and try. Do you really need it? Try to, to work out your minimums. Not everyone is capable of functioning on four to six hours. I know that. But I just study on myself. I would set an, I would go to bed at a certain time, set an alarm at a certain time, and then test the result. Do a sleep study mm-hmm. on yourself. How much time do you actually need? Maybe you do need 11 hours, and this whole feeling sorry for yourself plan doesn't work. You can't function. That's okay. That's nothing wrong, but you have to find other outlets to try it. You have to at least try. At least do the research. That's right. Don't just sit there and fall and say, this is what it is because you heard something on TV and it feels like it could be you and you're going to follow that path. Every, every, even if you take two identical cars, I guarantee you can find a differentiation between the two. So if you're going to make the assumption that you're like the hundred people in the sleep study that came up with these numbers, don't follow into that. Test yourself. We're all completely 100% different people. What's your Instagram for people? 
Uh, it's my name, J- at James Schulteis, J-A-M-E-S-S-C-H-U-L-T-H-E-I-S. You're the man. We appreciate yeah. your time, and I can't wait for the next, next adventure with yeah, you, man. I'm always happy to come on, um, now that I'm used to it. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Thanks, Jay. <laughs>